praise your name and to worship you, and we just believe that you are already working in our lives, opening our hearts to hear what you would say to us. Lord, we don't come to hear a message. We don't come to hear a sermon. We don't come to hear something that I've labored over out of my mind to come to give us teachings and doctrines. We've come to hear from the living God today. And we thank you that your word promises us that, that the Spirit will take this living word and will speak it into our hearts. And Lord, what we need to hear today is so critical and vital in your heart and your mind. We pray now, Lord, that the Spirit of God would open the eyes of our understanding, that we would truly see what it is you want to say to us and show us today. I bind every spirit that would try to distract, every spirit because there's so much at stake today in what you want to say and what to do that no one can miss and not hear what you are trying to say. So I bind every spirit that would try to distract and try to dissuade us from hearing what the Spirit wants to say to us this morning. And Father, for that we give you thanks in advance. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You may put the graphic up there, please. We're in a series, and we've got one more message to do on this, on the edge of eternity. The edge of eternity, and, and the graphic that they will put up there, the picture that they're going to put up there, call things that be not as though they were. is a picture of a man there he is this is so perfect for what what God wants to say to us this is a picture of a man that is walking notice he's in a suit which means he's going to work, going home he's about his normal activity but he has a blindfold on and because of the blindfold he does not realize where his next step is and he's assuming that the next step is like all the other steps he's had on solid ground, which refers to this life. But what we can tell, because we can see things he can't see right now, that his next step is not on solid ground, what he would think is solid ground. His next step is into something called eternity. But he can't see it because there's a blindfold over his eyes. It's interesting, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, uh, Paul writes that Satan blinds the eyes of those that don't believe so that they can't see the glory of God that's in the face of Christ Jesus. So we, we're walking through life with our blindfold on. And this is just as true of Christians as it is of unbelievers because we don't know what that next step is, what our next moment is, what our next day is. We don't know what that is. And so... So the question is, are you, are, what do we do because we're on the edge of eternity? We talk about the word edge, means it's a boundary. It's where something ends and something else begins. And all of us are living on that edge. And we talked the first time, we just kind of introduced this subject. What does this mean for us? Part of it is we've got to open our eyes and realize the Bible says in, in uh, Ephesians 5 that we are to walk circumspectly. We talked about what that word means. It means aware of where we are. Aware with a blindfold off. Aware that any moment we and the people around us are stepping off out of this life into eternity. We talked about the fact that this is all we know. All, everything we know is a beginning and an end. We'll talk more about that next week. Everything we know is this life. And that's all we know. We just know that there are people we know that aren't here anymore. I was thinking this last week over people that were so close to me. Some elders that's so close to me. Some of them were our spouses of some of you here this morning. And, and, and they, were, they were here just a year or so ago. And now they're there. And the reality that there's going to come a sometime when I'm not here anymore. Some of you are going to say, yay. And, and that I'm there. <laughs> but it's true of you too. And it's affecting how I live my life. And so last week we began to look at, well, what does that mean What does the reality of eternity mean to those that are in Christ? And we talked about there will be a judgment. We're going to talk more about that today. A judgment for Christians. And the judgment's not whether you go to heaven or not. The judgment is once you step into eternity, that's not the end, just the end of here. It's the beginning of a whole new life for eternity. And we're not just going to sit on clouds, you know, sipping iced tea, playing harps, and being ministered to by beautiful music and angels. There's jobs to do. If you don't work here, you're going to work there. Well, if you don't work here, you may... Well, then we won't go there. Um... There's jobs to do. There's responsibilities in heaven. 
And what you do here, how faithful you are here with what God's called you to do here will determine what you're responsible for and the privileges you have there because there's different degrees of heaven just as there are different degrees of hell. There are some that are going to minister around the throne of God because of how faithful they were here for what He's given them to do. And others are going to live on the outskirts in heaven. But once you get there and say, I made it, now what? And where you live your life here, our obedience, the things we do here, I'm not going to go back over last week's message, determines, you are determining what your eternity is like by what you do, how faithful you are to what God's called us to do today. We make decisions every day that are affecting our eternity. But today we're going to talk about what about those that right now are not in Christ? What about those that are not in Christ? And how does it affect you if you're here this morning and you don't know for certain that you're in Christ? Or how does that affect those of us that are in Christ, but we have people all around us that are not in Christ? So that's what we're going to look at, at today. As I said, all around us there are people every day, they may even be in here right next to you, who right now, if they, if they step into eternity, are spending eternity in hell separated from God. And my purpose this morning is not to scare us, but to awaken us. That was the title of the first message. The Bible talks about in these days to be sober and awake and alert and recognize where things are to wake up from our sleep. So I want to give a little background to this. They're going to step into eternity, but what's the eternity they're going to step into? You understand everlasting life is not living forever? Because we're all going to live forever. Our bodies aren't, but your soul and your spirit are going to live forever. The only question is, where? The only question is, where? So what is this edge of eternity? What does eternity mean for someone that's not in Christ when they step off into eternity? To do that, I want to give you a little bit of background of what God's like and why God does certain things. Because we tend to think of God in human terms, and that's a huge mistake. One of the purposes the Bible's been given to us is to reveal to us what God's really like, not what we think He's like or what we want Him to be like but what He's really like. God won't change who He is to meet your expectation or your desires. We need to change our expectation and desires to line up with who God is. So we think, because we're living in an age of grace, and especially the time we're living right in right now, the message of grace is being proclaimed around the world, and it's especially strong here in the United States. And it's true. The basic treating of grace is true. But the mistake we can make from that is misunderstanding what grace is. Because we can begin to think grace means that God's soft. Oh, but pastor, God's merciful. He is merciful. But He's also holy. He's also just. He's also true to His Word and true to Himself. And see, here's what we do. Because what we often do as parents... As a, if, you're, if you're a good parent, you'll set down some rules and some expectation for your children. Let, let's just stop here. And I've got to be careful. I, don't wanna, I could spend several weeks on this. Because parents nowadays are being raised with the idea that, that as a parent, my responsibility is to be my child's best friend. No. They'll never leave home. <laughs> They'll live off of you. For the rest of their li- your life, if that's your attitude. Our role as parents is to raise them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. To train them up to know Him and to serve Him and to love Him. And then to love others and do what the Bible says to do. How did I get off on that? Ron, did you get me off on that? Okay, you didn't get me off on that. Oh, okay. So what we tend to do as parents is we've set down rules and expectations for our children. And then what happens is they violate them. They do violate them. And then what we tend to do is because we want to be merciful, we'll start adjusting the rules so we can be merciful. So you tell your child, if you do that one more time, you're going to get spanked. 
Spanking is in the Bible. Not abuse, but spanking is. You do that one more time, you're going to get spanked. And they do it one more time. And you don't want to spank them. So, well, I'm going to give them a little mercy. I'll give you some mercy this time if you do it again. (laughs) And we think that's merciful. So we think that's what God does. We think mercy is God looks at our sin and says, I love you, so I'm going to, get, I'm going to look the other way. I love you, so I'm, I'm going to look the other way because I'm merciful. I don't want to punish you. I don't want to see your life destroyed. I don't want to see you spend eternity else. So I'm just going to, because I love you and I know you're genuinely sorry, I'll look the other way. And we think that's God's love and mercy. And that's not God's love and mercy. This is why we need some understanding of what God's like in order to understand what this message is. Above all, this is what we've lost track of, above all, God is a holy God. God is a holy God. He is holy. There are angels whose full job, 24 hours a day, and they don't have days in heaven, but their full job is to simply go around the heaven, go around the throne of God saying, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God of hosts. And they don't ever tire of it. If Jesus were to appear in His glory right now, none of, you would, none of us would stay in our seats. His holiness would drive us to the floor. Not because God's mad at us, because His holiness is so far beyond anything our minds are, are, are we have ever experienced. The little glimpse we have is whenever people in the Bible have come into the presence of even an angel, they fall on their face. Not because someone tells them they have to, because they recognize when they see that holiness. It's what Isaiah did. Isaiah chapter 6, he's, he's taken by vision into the throne room of God. He sees God, falls on his face. The angels have to pick him up. And, he, and Isaiah was a holy man, a good man. And he says, oh my God, literally, I've now seen your glory and I am a man of unclean lips. And he needed to see God's holiness before he could see his own unholiness before God could use him. God is holy. God is just. Just means He's true. He stands for what's right and He's against what's wrong. What's right gets rewarded, what's wrong gets punished. But here's God's problem. Let's go to, um, here's God's problem. If, you're, if God's absolute, He's absolutely holy. He's not just holier than other things. He's absolutely holy. And that means anything that comes into His presence, listen carefully, this is so important, anything that comes or into His presence that is not as holy as He is, dies. Not because He gets mad at him. His holiness is so powerful that any unholiness dies immediately and whatever that unholiness is is in dies with it. So if you or I were to appear on our own in the presence of a holy God any sin in us any wrong motive any wrong thoughts that we've ever had ever dies and because they were in us we die too. say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I was too. I was a good lawyer. And I don't mean by that I was good at practicing law. I was a good person as a lawyer. Some of you may think that's hard to believe. (laughs) I was honest. I didn't cheat on my wife. I didn't put my practice ahead of her or my family. And this is what I was struggling with. I'm a good person because I compared myself to you. (laughs) some of you I compared myself to the other lawyers I work with they're not as honest as I am some of them were cheating on their wives some of them had already had two or three wives I'm, I'm a better person than they are that's right compared to them I was but compared to God Romans 3.23 see if you can put that up there Paul says all say all all includes you 
all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So compared to God, all of us have sinned. Because in God's standard, if you've ever sinned once, in thought, word, or deed, you've sinned and you've fallen short. This is what a lot of the Old Testament was designed to prove. But what's God going to do? He's not only God of justice. So if, if, we're, if, sins, if we've sinned, we ha- sin has to be judged. It has to be judged. Or else, listen to this, if God doesn't judge the sin, then He's become unjust. And now He ceases to be who He is. See, if God varies His standard, if He varies His word, then He ceases to be a just and holy God. So God has this dilemma. How I love these people. I created them. I created them to be with me. How can I have these people with me if I bring them to me and they die because they're unholy? But I can't change my holiness or I stop being who I am. And God in His infinite wisdom that only love, only love, only this kind of love could come up with this answer. Because He is love and merciful, He had to find a way to bring ungodly men and women to be with a holy God. Go back to verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 24 being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the righteousness we're given is by faith in Christ. I'll talk about that in a minute. Verse 25. Whom God sent forth, whom He sent His Son Jesus forth as a propitiation. That's a fancy word for payment of, for us. By His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God passed over the sins that were previously committed. Stop there. That's about the Old Testament. Through the Old Testament rituals of sacrifices, God was able to overlook temporarily the sins that were previously committed. Verse 26. To demonstrate at the present time His righteousness so that He might be just keep His justice, keep His righteousness, and still be the justifier of one who has faith in Christ Jesus. Pastor, what does all that mean? It means this. God, God found a way, God found a way to, 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 to take His righteousness, which qualifies to be with Him, and give it to you, and give it to me, and to take our sin upon Himself. God did... The unthinkable. It says in Ephesians that, that if the rulers had realized, and, and it, that, I think that's talking about spiritual rulers, that the devil as well as the people that crucified, if they realized what he was doing, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. But it never entered into their mind. It never entered into the religious people's mind. It never entered into the devil's mind that God would do such a thing. That a holy God, the creator of the universe, who, who demands, who has the right to demand every living thing bow before him, that he would step out of heaven, come down here, humble himself, and take our sin, our unrighteousness upon himself, and then pay for it, and then give us his righteousness so we could come and be with him for eternity, so now we could qualify because we would have his righteousness. Unthinkable. But that's the only way he could remain just and holy and yet justify us. Amen. When you get a hold of that, it blows your mind about the amazing love of Christ, of God, that God would do that. He didn't bend who He was to redeem us. He traded places with us. 
to redeem us. Wow. 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 He paid the price himself through Christ. Romans 5. When that begins to settle in on you, you begin to understand a little more the love of God. Romans 5 or 6. For while we were still without strength, that doesn't mean you had trouble getting out of bed. That means we didn't have enough strength to make ourselves holy. We didn't have the strength, the ability to make ourselves holy. While we were still without strength in due time, Christ, let's look at this, Christ, Christ, the Son of God, the Son of God, God's Holy Son, died for the ungodly. That's you and me. He, instead of us dying, He died. A holy Son of God died in the place of the ungodly so that we might live. Verse 7. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, but yet for a good man someone might dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I think those of us that have been walking with the Lord for a number of years forget that. We forget that. We forget that He died for us before we came. We couldn't have come to Him if He hadn't already died for us. Because then we begin to think we have value to, of Him because how we walked our life for these last 30 years or 40 years. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is still the background. Oh, we've got to move on. Oh, Lord. Okay. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved. Listen to this. We will, we shall, having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For while we were still enemies, we were rec- enemies of God, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we will, shall be saved in this life. Not only that, but we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. What does this mean? Christ, Jesus, God's own sinless Son, took our place and paid First, Second Corinthians five twenty one says, "He who knew no sin, that's Christ, became sin, our sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ." So Christ took the wrath of God's righteous judgment. Now, listen carefully. He took the on that cross. He took the wrath of God. For all of our sin, everyone that's ever lived, He paid God's wrath for all of our sin was poured out on that cross on His sinless Son. Your sin was paid for. My sin was paid for. The sin of the world has already been paid for on that cross. That's good news. That's the good news of the gospel. But... We have to choose to receive that gift of God's Son paying for my sins. It's not enough for me to believe God paid for the sins of the world. That doesn't do me any good. It's only when I, only when I choose to receive. Now think of this. God took His own Son whom He loved so dearly, who was sinless, had Him live on this earth for three and a half years, a sinless life, and then He, this, un, this righteous, holy Son of God, took my unholiness, paid for my sin in full. Colossians said, the writing of the debt, the writing of my sins was eradicated. So there's no record of it. By His blood. Before I was ever born, it was already paid for. That's what He did for us. And now, I have to choose 
every one of us, whether I accept that gift, that payment for my sin, or I'm going to reject it and try to do this myself. And this is the issue before God for each one of us. Each one of us must choose to accept Christ as the payment for our own sin. We just read in Romans 5.9 that it's those who are in Christ shall be saved from the wrath of this judgment. So that's the background of what we're going to talk about this morning. Now what awaits those who step into eternity without Christ? Because that's what we're talking about this morning. Go with me to Second Thessalonians. There's a number of scriptures we could turn to. Things Jesus said. But it's kind of summed up best. Its message gets across. It's Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. Now this church was going through a lot of trouble. There were people persecuting them, coming against them. But knowing, beloved brethren, talking to the believers, your election by God, for the go- our gospel, our good news, did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you. And you become followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And you become examples in all of Macedonia and Achaia, that's it's Greece, who believe. For from the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith towards God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. He's talking about those who put their trust in Christ. For they themselves declare, he's talking about those that now come, the people that have not received Christ. They themselves declare concerning what manner of entry we had with you, and you've turned to God from idols to serve the living God. I'm in the wrong chapter. (laughs) It was good stuff. It took me a while to figure that out. That was really good stuff there. 2 Corinthians 1. Okay, here we go again. Verse 4. And we ourselves boast about you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all persecutions and tribulation which you endure. So they've been going through tribulation. Which manifest or became evident the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it was a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. There is a day of accounting for the people that have persecuted you. And to give you who are troubled, rest with us when Jesus, Lord Jesus, is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. Verse 7. So when He's revealed from heaven with mighty angels, verse 8, in flaming fire. He's not coming back the way He came the first time. This is Jesus coming back. Taking vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What that means, those who do not accept the good news of the gift that God has given to us of forgiveness in Christ. There's a wrath that's coming. There's a judgment and a wrath that's coming on those that have... Just, well, just think about it even in human terms. Think of all we just talked about, what God did. And then we stand before God and He says to us, I did this for you. This is my son. He's got nail holes still in his hands and his feet. A hole in his side. The scars of what he did to pay for your sin. And you rejected him? In place of what you thought you could do to make yourself holy? On those who do not obey the gospel. Next verse. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Verse 10. When He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among those who believe because our testimony among you has been believed. Verse 11. Whoops. Go back. I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay. Yep. Notice, put up verse 8. He's coming back and there will be judgment. The anger of God. God does have anger. It's a righteous anger. On those who do not know God, number one, and number two, those who do not obey the gospel 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice obey. Obeying is something you've been told and you choose not to do it. To re- who reject Christ and putting their trust in Christ. Okay. Now go to Revelation 20. I don't teach a lot out of Revelation because, to be very frank with you, I don't understand a lot of it. And I may do some things at some point. Obviously, I'm teaching out of it this morning. There's a lot of symbolism in there and a lot of different opinions about what some of it means. But this is pretty clear. This is, the, this is the Apostle John, the last of the surviving of the apostles that walk with Jesus. He's on the Isle of Patmos, probably 90 years old. They estimate somewhere around in there. And on Sunday, before church, he's on his knees praying, and he has a vision, and Jesus appears to him and says, write these things for these churches. And this is part of what he's telling us is to come. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away. And there was found no place for them. Very sobering thoughts. Verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, meaning people whose names nobody ever knew, and great kings, those who people, everybody knew, standing before God. This is everybody. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. So there's all these books opened, and then there's a separate book, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. My brothers and sisters, this day will come. This day will come. Verse 13. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. So everybody that's ever lived and has died coming back. The death and Hades delivered up the dead and that were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. Verse 14. And, the de- and death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Verse 15. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. Here's what I believe this is saying to us. When we stand before God, the books are going to be open of everything you did, everything you said, and everything you thought. In, in, in Mark uh, 4.22, Jesus said, There is nothing hidden, talking about the things in our hearts, in our minds, which will not be revealed. Nor is there anything that's been kept secret that shall not come to light. Everyone will be brought to judgment. Nobody can stand before God in his own works. But for those of us that are in Christ, the books may be opened, but then our names are found in the book of life. In other words, when you stand there, you won't stand alone. The great white throne judgment. Jesus stands there with you. And when God looks at the deeds you've done and not done, He's going to go through the deeds and then He's going to look at Christ who has already paid for those deeds. But if you're not in Christ, you're going to stand before that great white throne and the only thing going to justify you is what you've done or not done before a God who sees everything and it's all written down. And you will have no excuse. You will have no answer. And then the judgment's going to come called the second death because they were cast into, cast into the lake of fire. Everyone's brought to this judgment. Those not in the book of life. Isn't it interesting when Jesus, when the 70 come back, Jesus sends the 70 out, He sends the 12 out to minister, then He sends a group of 70, which is a larger group that followed Him. And He sends them out and, and He gives them authority 
over, over demons, over all, the, over all the power of Satan. And, over, and he sent them out to minister, to cast out demons, to raise the dead, to pray for the sick, and, the, and all that, to preach the gospel. And they come back and they say, Pastor, they're so excited. They say, Whoa, it works. Your name works. Even the demons were subject to us in your name. And Jesus said, Come down, come down, come down, come down. Let's have a little, let's have a little adjustment here. I'm glad you're excited, but let's get our perspective right. First of all, I'm not that impressed because I saw Satan fall from heaven. Okay, I, I saw the, the main dude fall. Okay, I saw him go out quickly. didn't take long. It was like lightning. He said, but, but don't rejoice in this. Instead, rejoice that your name, your name Amen. is written in that book in heaven. Amen. So what does this mean? What does this mean? Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. What's this mean for us in Christ? What, what, what should we do, Lord? Why are we here? Why is, why is the church here? What are we here to do? What's, what's my life for? What's, what's the purpose of my life? 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us. That's not, that's not our love for Christ. That's His love for people. His life for people. Paul's saying, Christ's love for people has compelled me. Because we judge this, that if one died, then all died. And He died, verse 15, for all. So listen carefully. So that those who live, that's us, should no longer live for our, themselves, but for Him who died and rose again. That's Christ followers. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, we know Him this way no longer. This went off in me away this morning when I was looking over this again that I've never seen before. They're saying we're no longer to look at each other according to this outward man we see. Because the outward man you see is just our body. But what you see now is only one third of me. This is my body. And this is the least important part of me. Because you are a spirit. You have a soul, your mind, your will, and your emotions. And, and they live in your body. And what we do is we look at one another, we evaluate one another, we, rea- we relate to one another based on our bodies, what we look like. I mean, that's how I, that's how I knew Don this morning. Wasn't in it? Well, won't go there. So I knew Don this morning. I recognized Don because I'm looking at his outward man. I look at, so I know Don. But we also do is evaluate one another. We think of one another according to the flesh. But Paul's saying here, no, 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 don't do this anymore. This, there's an eternity involved here. Instead, we're to look at one another not according to the outward appearance because look what he goes on to say. He says, um, we no, we, therefore we now no longer regard any according to the flesh even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. We don't know Him that way anymore. There was a time when we, saw Jesus, we knew Jesus by looking at His face. But we don't know Him that way anymore. We now know Him spirit to spirit. We know Him inside, not to the outside. Verse 17. This is how we're now to look at one another. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away, and all things have become new. Verse 18, and all these new things are of God, who's reconciled us to himself through Christ Jesus and given us the ministry of reconciliation. It's up there. It's a mouthful. We're no longer to look at one another according to the flesh. Well, who do they think they are? They're part of Christ's body. That's how we're to look at one another. You're part of Christ's body. You're part of Christ's body. You're, this is Christ in here this morning. His body in here. Not all of it, but it's a part of His body. So when we, we, the way we treat one another is, the, is, is treating Christ. When Paul was stopped on the road to Damascus and Christ appeared to him and spoke to him, he said, Saul, Saul, he didn't say, why are you persecuting my church? Why are you troubling people I love? He said, why are you persecuting me? Why? Because the Christians Paul was persecuting were part of Christ's body. So we've got to learn to see each other, not according to the flesh, but according to who we are in Christ. But then we've got to learn to see those that are not in Christ the same way as outside, not to judge, but as lost, as about to step off into eternity but it's the eternity I just described to you. Verse 19. We've been given us the ministry of reconciliation. That's, that's not a, a clerical robe. That's a service. Okay, verse 19. 
And what is that ministry of, ministry of reconciliation? That God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. Just what we already preached. Not imputing their trespasses to them. No, so when God, just what I've just preached, that's what that says. God sent His Son. He was in Christ paying for the sin of the world to reconcile the world, restore the world back so that they could come into His presence, be His children even though they're ungodly and He's godly. And then He's committed to us the word of that reconciliation. That means He's committed to us the responsibility to tell others about what God has done. And what is that? Go to the next verse. That God was in... Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As the, listen carefully. This is what's been, really been burning in my heart lately. And I'm preaching to me and you're listening in. As though God were pleading through us we implore you on Christ's behalf, be, second, be reconciled to God. God wants the people that He's paid for. It's all paid for. And they don't know it. He wants to plead with them through us. We are His body. To be reconciled to Him. Alright. This should give us a sense of urgency. This should give us a sense of urgency. I want to. I want to read a story to you. I, I was so blessed because I. I. Um, I. I I'd heard this story somewhere, and I just. I thank God for Google. <laughs> Sometimes. How many of you know who Dwight L. Moody was? Oh my, Dwight L. Moody, D. L. Moody. Uh, maybe. 20% of you? Wow. He was one of the greatest evangelists that's ever lived. Greatest evangelist. He was saved right up here on State Street in Boston. I used to work next door. I walked to, walking to work one day, I saw this plaque on the wall. And he says, at this spot, at this shoe store, Dale Moody gave his life to the Lord. They memorialized that in Boston. Isn't that interesting? And so, this is a story that's written about him and something that happened. And this is the story. It says, God's, listen carefully. God's gifts of mercy are packaged in the t- today's of our lives. On October 8, 1871, the well-known evangelist D.L. Moody preached to the largest congregation that he'd ever yet addressed in Chicago. His text that evening was, What shall I do with Jesus? Just what we talked about. Who is called the Christ was taken from Matthew chapter 27, verse 22. And at the conclusion of the sermon, he said, I wish that you would take this text home with you and turn it over in your minds during the week. And next Sunday, we will come to Calvary and the cross, and we will decide what to do with Jesus of Nazareth. And then his song evangelist, Dr. S- uh, Mr. Iris Nanke, started playing the hymn with which he closed his service. But he never finished the hymn. For while he was singing, the Russian roar of fire engines whistled by the church on the streets outside. And before morning, much of the city of Chicago lay in ashes. This is the great fire of Chicago. Now listen carefully. To this dying day, Mr. Moody deeply regretted that he had told the congregation to come next Sunday and decide what to do with Jesus. I've never since dared, he said, to give an audience a week to think about salvation. If they were lost, they may rise up in judgment against me. I have never seen that congregation since. I will never meet those people until I meet them in another world. But I want to tell you one lesson that I learned that night, which I've never forgotten. And that is when I preach, I press Christ upon the people then and there trying them to bring them to a decision on the spot. I would rather have my right hand cut off than an audience go a week now to decide what to do with Jesus. This article goes on and says, In many of our churches across the nation, a spirit of indifference has descended upon the pulpit here and the pew. And like Moody before the great Chicago fire, we've allowed ourselves to say tomorrow. But tragically for most, that day of grace never comes. 
friends and family members die without saving knowledge of Christ, we must not allow the dis-ease of spirit to be confused with, confounded with the ease of body. To be well in body does not necessarily equate with wellness in spirit. Would you allow yourself a sense to renew the passions of your soul? Very sobering words. But that's what we must learn to do. So what's that mean for us here? I'm preaching to me this morning. I love teaching. That's the gift that God's given me. And so my goal and motive is to take the, the Scriptures and make them clear to you. But God's been arresting my heart and telling me that I, I've become fat in my soul in the sense of the Gospel. I've had so much knowledge, so much understanding, so much revelation that I've lost touch with why we're here, why we're all here. And every Sunday... I believe we have some people among us that are in the same category. They're about to step off into eternity. And we come in here, we may even greet them, and we let them leave without ever thinking about it. That doesn't mean we force the Bible on people. That doesn't mean we go out and beat on people. But we've got to become aware of, of what this is all about. And one of the ways God's begun to deal with me is that because I love preaching, I'll preach right up to the end and say, let's have an altar call. Nobody got to say thank you, goodbye, go home. The invitation that we give at the end of a service, now listen carefully, in terms of eternity, is the most important moment in a service. Because whether you heard or didn't hear some principle that you might need, that's okay. But there are people here that are literally on the edge of eternity and may never get another chance. And what we often do is once we shift gears, because we're all about ourselves and, you know, what's going to happen next and whew, pastor's finally finished. And, and we're so used to the routine here, you can sense when the message is about to end. And then people just start closing down, close their Bible off or up or turn off their device. And the moment we give an invitation... Not all of it, but sometimes we're out the door. Because what we needed was done. All the while there may be somebody sitting next to you who's stepping into eternity tomorrow, the next day, and may never come back. I'm talking to me and letting you listen in. So I'm instructing the ushers that when I begin the invitation... Unless you got a dire emergency, don't move. Because Satan, Satan, listen carefully, Satan will do anything to distract at that moment. There's a battle going on. I've been there years ago, 40 years ago. I've been there when there was a battle going on inside of me. And I, my thoughts were coming, no, you don't want to do that, you don't want to do that, you don't want to do that. And yet something was tugging at the inside of me. It was the Holy Spirit tugging at the inside of me. And any distraction can be just that distraction that pulls their attention away. And it's not that they'll miss a good message. It affects their eternity. A second thing we need to do is we need to be conscious of that moment. If you're not, you don't have to leave and you're not, you know, it's not, I'm not talking to you about having to get up. You're conscious of that moment. Pray. Pray. It's the most important part of the service. We've got, you've gotten what you needed to get. I've gotten what I needed to get. But there are people that need, desperately need, desperately need that little push over the edge, that little encouragement that can come because you're praying. It also can come because you're sensitive to people around us. Sometimes when we ask people to raise their hand, they'll, they'll do one of these. And because they're shy, and I understand that. And then when I give an invitation to come, they don't. And we've had times when people would go up and say, would, would, you like, would you go if I went with you? If you're just not alone, would you go? If you bring somebody or somebody around you you don't know, there's nothing wrong with saying, you know, would you like to go up there? And if they look at you and say, I've been here for 30 years, okay. <laughs> 
But we're talking about eternity. If, if, if you offend somebody by doing that, that's a Christian, that's their problem. But your heart was because you care about eternity for people around you. We tried last week to do the altar call in a different way and I, I didn't work. And I, I want to go back to what we've been doing. People need to know the decision they're making. And they have to make it. And they make it publicly. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. Oh, Lord, forgive us. You're so kind and gentle and patient. Forgive me. Forgive all of us. We get so easily, Lord, caught up in our world and our walk with you and our lives and church and who we're going to see and what we get out of it and all this other stuff. And our hearts have become dull and insensitive to what it means to you, to what's important to you. You would have every right to just remove your spirit from this place and write Ichabod over the doorway, the Lord has departed, but you're gracious and you're kind, but you're getting our attention now, mine especially. Lord, break our hearts open for what breaks yours, people. What matters to you is people. The people that are around us every day, the people that are around us now, the people, Lord, that we will run into this week that we may know that we may not know. People, Lord. You gave your son's life for people and we just count that so casual. We need the Holy Spirit, Lord, to visit us and break open our hearts that we would be open, that we would love what you love and hate what you hate. We ask you to forgive us. And we ask the Holy Spirit to come in this place and to change our hearts. To change our hearts, God. That we would begin to live our lives for what you gave us for. I pray now, Father, for people that are here whose lives are in the balance, whose eternity is in the balance. 